Good morning. Welcome to week 11 of 15. It's crazy to think that we're at Thanksgiving week already, but um, the weather definitely wants us to know that it's time. <laughs> My parents are back in America. Um, they are flying back from DC. Uh, I'll pick them up at two o'clock today. So they had a very successful trip. All the surgeries um, went well. There were no complications. Um, they were in Malawi for a surgical mission trip. So, and they are back. And my dad is one of the co-teachers of this class. So I think he's back next week. It might be Stephen. Uh, this is my last week, so you won't be seeing any more of me. I uh, thank you. Yes, that's what I was really looking for. Oh, you've been the best so far. <laughs> that I just want. Yeah, just bring on all the all the praise. That's what I'm here for. Uh, so week eleven, we are talking about the unjust steward. I was very happy with my dad for uh, leaving this one to me because this is probably the most confusing parable in the Bible. Like I, I'll just, I'm gonna go ahead and just say that blanket statement. I, I, to me, it's the most confusing because on its face, uh, it really is a head scratcher. So uh, luckily we have the next 45 minutes to talk about it. Uh, but as with every class, we will begin with saying the Shema. So if you will stand and say the Shema with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. And because this was a very long one, I will not make all of us read the uh, parable together. So if you'll go ahead and sit, and I will... Read Luke 16, 1 through 8. Uh, now he was also saying to the disciples, he being Jesus, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So on its face, what does it seem that, like if you were just going to, Okay, well, what does it seem like Jesus is giving the thumbs up for? Pays to be dishonest. Yeah, the manager is dishonest, and then the manager, or the steward is dishonest, and the manager is like, well done, good on you. Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> uh, so we're going to look at the context of how people in the first century and Hebrew culture would look at this. And maybe that'll help us decipher uh, what it is that Jesus is actually telling his um, followers. 
So as with everything, uh, not with everything, but with most of the parables, they are in a ring structure. Uh, so this is something we look at every week. Um, they're in stanzas, and those stanzas very often parallel each other. So this is everything I just read to you. I'm still trying to work with the colors to make it work on the screen. Uh, but you can see that it begins and ends with the master and the steward talking to each other. Uh, these two stanzas are separate, but two and three and five and six go together. So we have losses and losses, and then we have gains and gains. Usually uh, you'll see that two and six and three and five parallel, but here it is, two and three and five and six all parallel. And then um, as with uh, everything in a ring structure, the climax of the story and the turning point is in the very middle. That center stanza, and that is where the uh, steward has decided to, uh, uh, he comes up with a solution for himself. Uh, the translation that I use says manager. Um, some say steward. Most people are familiar with the language of steward. Um, but those are uh, equivalent, as we'll see in just a second. So... What is this parable about? It sort of seems like on its face it's about how Jesus is saying, steal people's money as long as you get away with it. People are going to be like, oh, you, you did it. Uh, not what this is actually about. So in order to really understand what this story is talking about, it's best to look at it where it is in the context of Luke. And although this is the very beginning of Luke chapter 16, it immediately follows the story of the prodigal son. And if you look at these two stories together, they both make a lot more sense. When you realize that Jesus probably told these stories back to back, he was speaking to the same group of people, uh, and the parallels are very similar. So to uh, compare and contrast the prodigal son and the unjust steward, both of them have a uh, master or a father that is very generous, very giving, um, in both the beginning and the end of the story. So in the beginning of the prodigal son, the father does not have to give the son the inheritance. He is within his right to say, I'm not dead yet. Wait your turn. Uh, but he goes ahead and gives the son the inheritance. And then at the end of the story, when the son is destitute and... Uh, comes back with his tail between his legs, asking his father to hire him as a hired servant. The father runs to him, opens his, hugs him with open arms, kills the fatted calf for him. Um, so at the beginning and the end of the story, we have the generosity of the prodigal son's father. In The Unjust Steward, we have the generosity at the end and the beginning of uh, the master, the one who owns the property. Uh, we also have a underling, so a son or a steward, who is very ungrateful and honestly takes advantage of the generosity of the master. And the prodigal son, we have the son who asked for his inheritance before he dies, which is the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, so I just had your money. After he squanders his money, there's a famine, he is starving, and he goes home and uh, accepts his father's um, the robe that he's given and the party that's given to celebrate his return. In The Unjust Steward, we have the steward who, in the very beginning, has already mismanaged funds. 
and the steward or in the manager um, fires him on the spot and then further takes advantage of the manager's kindness and by dealing with his debtors. Another equivalent is um, so we have the father, we have the son, and but you, so you get the idea that these stories are very they parallel in a lot of ways. So looking at what we get from the prodigal son will help us determine what we should also be getting from the unjust steward. So if you were to look at the prodigal son from the son's perspective, a takeaway that you could get, that you could take away would be, God's a sucker for taking you back in the first place. So live the good life while you can. And when things turn bad, God will be there for you. So you can go back to him then. That is a, something that you can, if you look at it just from the son's perspective. Uh, that's obviously not what you are supposed to take away. But without looking at it from the father's generosity, we just have the son's point of view. But when you look at it from the prodigal son's father, you see that when the prodigal son's father is that metaphor for God, we learn that God is a, has extraordinary grace and so much love for his children. And he, it doesn't matter what you've done, he will love you and you can come back to him. So that's what you're supposed to be taking away, right? Not what you could take away if you were just looking at the sun in isolation. So in the same way, we don't want to look at the unjust steward without looking at the master. So just looking at the steward's perspective, the steward gets away with dishonesty. At the end of the story, he isn't punished for what he's done. He um, is actually praised for his shrewdness. Um, so his deviousness pays off from a financial standpoint. But when we take a look at how the master's perspective changes things, we can see that um, the master is saying, the steward acted knowing my generosity, and uh, his gamble paid off because he understands who I am. So the uh, lesson that we are supposed to be learned comes from the relationship between the steward and the master, in the same way that the message from, that we receive from the prodigal son comes from the relationship between the son and the father. Is everyone following me so far? I know this is kind of, it took me a little while to really let this sink in. So let me go through the cultural uh, lens through which we look at the unjust steward, and then we'll re-examine the parallels between the prodigal son and the unjust steward. Uh, Luke 16, 1 through 8. The uh, manager who is uh, praised for his shrewdness after reducing the debts of his uh, the people that owe money to his master. So the master's characteristics. Um, the master is a landlord. Uh, we know this because uh, okonomos is the word that is used to describe the steward. Um, and that word means a state manager. Sometimes there's confusion about whether or not the uh, master is a banker or anything like that. Um, sometimes, and the bigger picture issue at here is, sometimes um, when you hear sermons about this story, people will say, well, clearly the master was unjust. 
So the steward was justified in how he acted because the master himself was unjust. So there are no right parties here. Everyone's acting wrongly. And in that case, the steward is a Robin Hood type figure. So Jesus is talking about a Robin Hood figure. But that's not actually the case because we can see that the master is just and noble. So uh, he is a landlord and that means he's an estate manager and rent is paid to him in produce. So that at the end of the story, when they say, I owe him oil, I owe him wheat, that is how you pay rent to your landlord. Uh, the master has heard reports about his steward. Uh, if you are, how many people <laughs> know someone or uh, have been in a situation where you uh, have a landlord that is just a pain? Like people are always like, ugh, greed, like greedy landlords is a stereotype that we even in our Western culture have. Uh, the idea of the stingy landlord uh, that's just getting money off the back of the tenants. So that is a, that's something that takes place in this culture here as well. So the fact that people are reporting to the landlord, hey, your steward is not managing your assets well, that's a indication that people respect this landlord, um, people are friendly with him, people want, um, want to, him to know that his assets aren't being managed well. If you don't respect the person that is being mishandled, you're not going to be like, you're a jerk, but I really feel like you should know about your steward. No, the fact that people are letting him know about his steward means people respect him. He's well-liked. Uh, he it is within his lawful rights to fire the steward on the spot. Um, so when he says, give me your accounting of the books, what that means is, Hand the books back over to me, you're done. You're fired right here, right now. Uh, that's totally within his rights of first century rabbinic law to do that. Um, also, other things that were within his rights that he didn't do is he could have jailed the steward. That was within his rights to have the steward jailed. It was also within his rights to have him and his family sold into slavery in order to recoup the debts. So the steward and his entire family could have been sold into slavery, uh, and the master would have been within his rights to do that. But what the master does is he just fires him. So this is actually pretty merciful. It's a just action because the steward has mismanaged his funds, but it's also uh, merciful. So we know that the master is just. What does the steward do about that? Um, the steward doesn't say anything in response to the admission that he is guilty, uh, in response to the accusations that he is guilty. Uh, in both Eastern and Western civilizations, silence is considered an admission of guilt in uh, the uh, popular sense, not in American legal sense. You, right? That's the right to plead the fifth. You can't incriminate yourself. But you're always, as a, as a, you know, a person, you're like, mm, if they were innocent, wouldn't they have, wouldn't they have protested? Like, it, if the fact that they were quiet is sketchy. And it's sketchy here, too. Um, as with everything in uh, Hebrew culture, it's a very long, drawn-out discussion, right? So normally, the, uh, if, if a servant were to be fired, that would be a negotiation that would take place over a couple of days. And the steward would also, right off the bat, try and say, no, I didn't do it, or 
please, my father worked for your father. My grandfather worked for your grandfather. Um, this is a generations-long uh, relationship that's probably being severed here because that's how stewards and masters uh, were. It was generational. Um, he could have also said, I'm not the only guilty party here. I mean, it takes two to tango if I was, you know, if I was skimming some off the top, well, other people were in on it. Uh, he doesn't say any of that. He's just silent and lets the master uh, fire him on the spot. So that is an admission of guilt. So we know that the steward has mismanaged funds. And so now he talks to himself and is like, all right, well, what am I going to do about it? Who is going to hire me knowing that I have mismanaged funds? So he... Um, has this inner dialogue with himself. Some other points, um, the first century audience would have expected the steward to argue, so the fact that he didn't would have been a red flag to him that he was guilty. Um, we, the audience would have assumed the only reason why the steward is not arguing with the master is that the steward know he's, knows he's in the wrong, he knows that the master knows he's in the wrong, and the master can't be manipulated by pleas to uh, emotional appeal, please, my father knew your father, or yeah, but I'm not the only guilty party. Because the master is just, he knows that those manipulations aren't going to work. Um, and from a practical standpoint, as soon as that steward is fired, he no longer has the authority uh, to act on behalf of the manager, or on behalf of the master. Uh, he has the books, and so he has the trappings of still being the uh, steward or the manager, but legally speaking, he can't enter into anything, um, any agreements with tenants or anything like that. Um, but uh, nobody knows that he's been fired. The only people that know that the steward has been fired are the master and the steward himself. So that is why uh, the steward comes up with this plan, because he knows that no one else knows that he's been fired yet. His goal is to be received into someone else's house. Uh, this is an idiom to say, I need to get another job. I want to be masters, or I want to be a steward to somebody else. I can't dig ditches, and I can't beg. The only thing I'm good for is being a steward, and I need to get a, a steward position somewhere else. How am I going to do that? Um, so he's quick on his feet. He realizes that nobody else knows that he's been fired yet. So he's still commanding the other servants in the house like he is the steward because the, steward, the servants don't know yet. So he tells the servants, go get the debtors, and the debtors come to him one by one. So this is an example of um, sin begetting sin. So he has wronged the uh, master once, and what he does to try and fix this problem is to sin more. He goes and gets the debtors one by one, and um, he really the what the do what the the reason why this plan works is because uh, Hebrew culture then and now is very based on the idea of honor and shame. That's a very power mo powerful motivating force. So we have the um, debtors who publicly um, can say that they thought that the steward was acting on behalf of the master. They had no idea that he had been fired yet. 
So when they got these debt reductions, they thought that they were legitimate. Um, whether or not in private that they had any inkling that this is a, this is a, a questionable action, um, that is something that takes place in the private sphere, so they can have those private doubts. But as long as um, in public they have the propriety to say, I had not heard that the steward had been fired, um, that's really what's motivating um, these deals here. The idea that you have public honor and you want to avoid um, that shame. So that's why the steward is having them come one by one to make these, um, to make these deals. So the community's reaction. These are the debtors and the debtors' families. The debtors are another way to say the tenants of the land. So these are the people that are actually working the landlord's land. Um, the debts are reduced by an enormous amount. You can probably figure that out by the fact that 100 goes to 50, 100 goes to 80. That's percentage-wise just a large amount. But to actually put into perspective what that means is so 100 uh, measures of oil was how much the original debt was for. It got reduced to 50 measures of oil. That's equivalent to about 500 denarii, which at the time was the wages for a farm worker for a year and a half. So basically, the steward, uh, pretending to act on behalf of the master, took off a year and a half of debt, which is a lot. And he did that for all of the debtors. So this isn't something where it's like, oh, I don't have to pay you those 20 bucks back? Thanks, guys. Uh, no, this is a huge deal. So we can very safely assume, and the first century audience would have very definitely assumed that as soon as those uh, debts were reduced, there was a celebration that was taking place. Um, the families, um, the whole entire community would have been celebrating the fact that these debts have just been massively slashed. Years uh, of working have been um, reduced. The debt of working has been reduced. So everyone will be <coughs> praising the master's name, right? Like he's such a generous person. He is so giving, so generous, so kind. So that puts the master in a, in a weird position. So legally, he has the right to say, hey guys, so I had fired the steward. So all of those debt reductions he did, not, not actually legally binding. So like the original amounts are still there. Uh, but then, because of how human nature works, instead of... <laughs> The community being like, oh, okay. Then it would have been like, ah, you just took away that gift. <laughs> you know, it wasn't there to begin with, but once they had it and it was taken away, all of a sudden it's like, dang it. So the master would have been seen as a stingy, bad, awful, greedy guy, right? As landlords are, you know, they're just out there for a profit. Um, so that was the master's first choice. The second choice is to let the reduction stand, and he gets a, 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 the social bump of being known as a generous, kind person. Even though he didn't actually make those decisions, he is getting a reputational um, increase because of that. So that's why he says to the steward, you have acted shrewdly, because the steward knew that this master was a generous, kind man. 
So the steward gambled on the fact that once I reduce these debts, the master's not going to go back and reverse it uh, because he's a kind, generous man. So the steward's gamble paid off because the master was like, yeah, you're right. I'm going to let these reductions stand. So the steward's ethics are not congratulated. That is not what the master is saying. The master is not saying, uh, you lied, went behind my back, and lied to basically a whole community of people. Good job for that. What the steward is saying, or what the master is saying to the steward is, you know who I am, and you acted accordingly. Um, you were very shrewd in, in how you acted because you know, you know me, and you were able to act accordingly. So uh, the very final sentence of this parable <laughs> is, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And being shrewd is understanding the nature of others and acting on that understanding. So the, <laughs> Jesus is saying that the steward was shrewd in his understanding of others and acting on that understanding. And the steward is a son of this age. So if the steward can rely on the generosity of his master as a son of this age, how much more should we, as sons of light, be able to rely on how we, what we know of our master, God, and be able to be shrewd in knowing how he is and acting on that? So does that make a little more sense? Um, yeah, I, I still think if I could go back to Jesus and be like, can, can you just make this one like a little, a little clearer? Um, I would do that because it's, to me, it's, it's a head scratcher. But um, <laughs> I hope that that explanation makes sense to you. Yes? I always thought that the master didn't think he was going to ever be paid. And so he thought, well, the steward was pretty smart to get money after all. That, that was my way. Oh, so the debts were never going to be paid to begin with, so reducing the debts didn't that's, actually. That's what I always thought. That yeah. Maybe they weren't going to ever pay. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. From what I understand, um, again, the, the master could have, could have been um, found a way to be paid, should he have wanted to, yeah. whether that means, you know, uh, taking legal contractual action or something like that. Um, but yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting insight. I don't... Um, <laughs> I don't know much about that. Yeah. And then he was being shrewd to these guys who were shrewd because they weren't they were holding back on paying. Mm. I, I don't know. So there's an outsmarting that's happening. It goes with this, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind. So is it so is that saying that the people who are in, who owed were shrewd themselves? You know, I I, I tend to agree with with that. It, it looks like the amount of the debt was just massive, personally. I don't know how the hearers, I don't know what the average debt was per citizen right. in, in Jesus' area, but it strikes me that's a lot of debt. Mm. And so 
it may have been a perception by the hearers that, you know, a percent of something better than a percent of, of, of nada right. may never get repaid. And so they took advantage of the fact, well, here I got a chance to make this go away. Mm. So I, I don't know, it just, it's, um, in that sense, that's not necessarily unethical. That's often how massive debt is dealt with. Right. In any case, I think it's important to know that the steward was acting without the consent of the master, though. Um, and so in that sense, had things gone badly, he would have gotten his, could have gotten into a lot of trouble. So there was still a understanding of human nature that had to go into, into play on the, on the steward's part. Yes? In the parable we looked at last week, and in the parable immediately preceding this, in Luke, I don't know if they were contiguous in time or not, rich men don't come across very well. Right. As I think about this, I, I don't think a rich man in this may be a paragon of virtue. You know, he may be crooked Hillary or crooked Donald or, you know, things, you know maybe there's enough, there's enough guilt to go around here. And so the rich man may have been recognizing in the steward, hey, here's a guy who thinks like I do. You know, I have accumulated my wealth mm -hmm. by maybe nefarious means. And, and so you're taking the Robin Hood approach, stealing from the stealing from the rich in in that sense. Does that make sense? If the master if the master's crooked, then I'm not sure there are any heroes in this. The only hero in the rich man and Lazarus was Lazarus and he was a passive hero. He died and went to heaven and didn't do anything. He wasn't able to do anything. Right. I, w I will say that um, I cannot think of a parable in which there is not a just character. Um, there is normally an unjust character, one or many, but there is normally there's, at least one a just, just character. just character in Lazarus? It would be Lazarus. He was, he was a victim. Right, but he there is nothing... Uh, there's no character flaw in Lazarus, is there? What about, what about the rich man that built, tore down his barns and built graves? Uh, he is a sole actor, so I guess the... Yeah. So there are parables in which there's no good exemplary character. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should say that when there are characters <laughs> interacting, there is no... It's not all unjust characters. There's always one just character. Oh yeah, go ahead. To me, what I'm hearing now is, you know, think about the master, think about the master. And when I think about the master and make the connection to Jesus, like you're saying something about how God is, it's like, you know, I think what he's saying is, is that there's a lot of us who do things for every wrong reason in the world. And it still accidentally has a very positive response. And the forgiveness for the steward, it's like, I'm doing it just to have a resume that's padded, but it's not being interpreted that way from the people who are receiving that generosity. Right. And I just think about, sorry, it's it's the holiday season. Perfect example, people will be giving not for the unjust, or I mean for the people who are hurting, but just for the chance to be seen mm -hmm. and to be praised. And I think God is saying, or Jesus is saying a deeper mystery, which is, you guys do things for a lot of wrong reasons. 
and it's still accidentally mixed between them look good. It matters. It matters to me. Congratulations. Not the best way to get there, but you got there for every wrong reason you could, and it's still brought on celebration. Mm. Yes. Well, to me, I identify with the the attendance. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, same thing, Mr. Steve, uh, uh, you owe a million dollars. And, ooh, that's a lot of money. Some guy comes by and says, okay, uh, you pay me 500000 and we'll call it even. So I'm thinking, well, that's cause for a party, isn't it? So I pay the 500000 And so I identify that with what I actually owe, because mm -hmm. I've done a lot of stuff in, in my day that is probably not what the master expects, but he's going to come and say, all right, Steve, all is forgiven. Let's have a party. Yeah. So I, to me, I, I think that the generosity of the master is something that is indispensable to the story. Um, given that it could have gone, he could have put the steward in jail in the first place, and then we wouldn't have had a story. He could have sold the steward into slavery, and then we wouldn't have had a story. But for him, for this, him to have given kindness to the steward, the steward to have taken advantage of that kindness, and then for the, the master to show even more kindness to the steward is an example of grace after grace after grace, even when we are ungrateful and don't respect it and take advantage of it. Um, and so in that sense that I, I think having the master be an ethical, just, merciful person is, is uh, how it should be interpreted. But um, I guess if you want to interpret it as the master is unjust, then the steward becomes the hero and that he's outsmarting the big bad. So um, there have been a lot of interpretations in a lot of different ways. So uh, this is not something that there's a general consensus about in uh, biblical academia. As you read this parable, I know the Bible is silent on this, but you really wonder why Jesus told his disciples. Because the, the, the whole thing starts as Jesus tells his disciples this story. Right. And you got to believe there's some reason that prompted it. And when you look at the uh, kind of the payoff verses, verses 8 and 9, um, I guess the impression I'm left with is there may have been, under underline the word may, there may have been some problem with how his own disciples were seeing physical wealth, mm. money, and possessions. And that some may not have been uh, taking care of it, squandering it, hiding it. I, I don't. I don't know what the abuses were, but that's that's the impression I'm left with. Is he tells this somewhat amazing story without a lot of heroes to drive home the point that um, we need to take care of our as people of light. We need to take care of our stuff well. Um, yeah, so the story that immediately precedes this is the prodigal son, which I, I hope you all see the parallels between. And then following it is um, 
Jesus talking about money, and then it ends with a man cannot serve two masters. So um, there's a, and before the prodigal son, I believe it's uh, the idea that he, Jesus came to save those who are lost. So the lost sheep and the lost coin um, are before that. So just to put it all in context, and he's speaking to a mixture of his disciples, and then there are also Pharisees listening as well. Verse 14 brings the Pharisees in who loved money. They heard all this and they sneered at Jesus. And then he said to the Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And to me, like, and I know I don't know half of what you do in the literature, but like, I'm thinking it doesn't end at night. It really goes down to 15 when he's saying what's detestable in God's eyes is what you need to be paying attention to. Yeah. Not how you can get away with stuff. Yeah. So uh, the <laughs> we ended with verse 8 because that is um, yeah. generally the parables have like a one-sentence summation of the general principle. But I do think that it should be read in context with those next couple of verses that are all about money. Yeah. Cause, okay, because I had a question about that too, that verse 9. <clears throat> I was reading it in ASV, which just sounded weird, but then I looked at her NIV, and that's, it still sounds weird. <laughs> because, it, I mean, Jesus is kind of summing it up after after the end of the parable there in 8. <clears throat> I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain... Whoa, sorry, that it on now. Now. <clears throat> I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So Jesus is set telling his disciples. So is he's just saying, be shrewd in this world, and but the bottom line is, make friends. Yeah. However so you need to, I mean, not in a deceptive way like this guy was. Right. But use whatever resources you have available like Paul said be all things to all people mm -hmm. is that where we're getting it is that where he was getting at in this thing or? yeah so um, Ken Bailey the book we use for those of you who hasn't been here haven't been here before um, we use Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes um, as sort of the base context um, that we <laughs> use for this class and he um, grew up in um, the Middle East um, as a Christian and has a large collection of Syriac, Assyria, Assyriac, I'm really struggling with the words for you. Jesus, Aramaic, whoo, Aramaic, um, <laughs> Greek texts. Um, basically, he um, uh, does and does a lot of his own translations for himself. Um, and he says about verse 9 that he thinks that there, well, one, he wouldn't have split the chapters between prodigal son and unjust steward. He would have put them in the same chapter. And then secondly is um, that verse he would have added, put onto the next paragraph rather than, because when you look, it's verses 1 through 9 are in um, one paragraph. And so that's the parable that we just read and then the additional sentence about using your uh, worldly resources uh, to gain friends. And then there's the next chapter, which talks about the Pharisees and their love of money. Um, so what Ken Bailey says is that he would have started a new paragraph with chapter, with verse 9. And that verse 9 makes more sense in context with 
that next chapter about the Pharisees. Um, I, it all goes together to me, so it's a little bit of semantics, but when we look at what is Jesus trying to get from the parable itself, I think that that can have a have a effect. Because as we know, there were not chapters and verses when uh, people in the first century wrote out these books. That's something that we added later uh, for our own benefit. So, um, yeah, there are... Um, I don't know if that totally answers your yeah. question, but I thought it was an interesting note. Maybe it's yeah. just a simple reading on my point, but it seems to me that the whole summation of making sense for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth seems to be like what happened in the story before it, not what happens in the story after it. Yeah, so the unrighteous so wealth is not um, that, the interpretation of that is not um, wealth that has been gained unrighteously, but... Um, the fact that wealth itself is unrighteous in, in, um, as, a, uh, as a motivator. Does that make sense? So unrighteous wealth is hoarding money like the, the rich man who built up his bigger barns, bigger barns for his, his bumper crop. That's unrighteous wealth. Um, so... It's unrighteous wealth when you hoard it um, rather than seeing that money as a blessing from God that you should use to bless others. Does that make sense? I'm going to keep asking this a lot. <laughs> because I think, I, I really think that this is a, really a heady, confusing part that, of Luke that doesn't get talked about all that much because it's heady and confusing. Um, so... Um, Thank you. Uh, that is Kim Bailey's connection, definitely. <laughs> yes. And then the other thing is, with just what you said about the wealth, it does say something about that master who was not so obsessed with the amount that was owed him that he could let that go. Because, you know, when people owe you things, you want them to pay you. Right. Exactly what you owe. You know, and so that does let Mm -hmm. And in, in this culture, um, there is uh, debt forgiveness that because they're still following Leviticus and all those. So every seven years there um, is a forgiveness of debt. And then every 50 years, there's the year of Jubilee. So that, that forgiveness. You know, that, that's in Leviticus, but I don't think we have any evidence that that was ever practiced. Oh. That's an ideal. I have never heard of the year of Jubilee not being practiced, but... Uh, that's before my time. <laughs> yeah. um, but all that to say is debt forgiveness is something that God is uh, uh, putting great value on. The major message of the prophets was about the poor. Hmm. If we took out all the verses about instrumental music, you know, the Bible's would hold together. If you take out verses about the poor, they fall apart. Yeah. So that's, yeah. That's a major concern. Yes, definitely. Um, so I don't want to hold you guys over. Um, thank you so much for Here's coming James to class. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>